This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Loose Units Origins. It's a brand new season of Loose Units and this season we're going through the book chapter by chapter. Dad, you've got your copy of Loose Units in your hot little hands right now, don't you? Um, well, technically no, because it's right... It's to my left. Okay. It's about um, four inches from my elbow. Okay. It's really important to know where your book is at all times. It's like an emergency exit. Okay. So yep. if you're listening to Loose Units Origins and you don't know where your copy is, make sure you can see it in case something goes terribly wrong and you need to, you know, make mm. a hasty exit into the I th- book. Yeah. I think it's important to actually, um, I'm not saying it's essential, mm. but I mean, let's face it, Paul, the book is actually technically, I hate to say this but it's about me, and I still read the prologue and chapters one and two this morning. Mm-hmm. I got up extra early. Uh, I didn't read it then, but I, I got up extra early. But uh, yeah, anyway, look, I did ultimately read it, mm. and, I, and I found it, um, it's great going back. And, and, and I think if you... If you I think it'd be nice if you could actually read it, then listen to what we talk about. Yes, but I mean, obviously, if you've got a copy, that's great. If you don't, you know, hit up a local library, try and find the audiobook. But if you can't, don't worry, um, because, you know, this won't kind of ruin things for you because one of the core conceits of Loose Units is it's my taking something Dad did and telling a story based on that. So the reason we're doing Origins is because the way it actually happened is, you know, that's sometimes... Uh, you know, quite different. So we are going to get the cases behind the stories. Would mm. you agree with that, Dad? One hundred percent, Paul. And it's really great. It was a great idea. Actually, who 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 came up with the idea? Me. Are you sure? A hundred percent. Did I have anything to do with the idea? Nothing whatsoever. Thank you. Um, no, look, I. It's weird. You're not going to believe this, Paul. But when I was reading the prologue in chapters one and two today, mm. I. I just it just brought up so much extra stuff. It's incredible. Well, I mean, if at certain points during the during the episodes and during the breakdown of loose units and going into the stories behind the book, if at any point you remember something that you've never talked about before, then we are actually technically allowed to segue and do episodes about those cases. So, and also here's something I want to talk about, Dad. Um, I got asked this in an interview recently, and someone said. Because there is a, okay, there is a fairly spectacular fight scene in this book, and someone asked me if that's how it actually happened, and I said, "No, of course not." But I did point out the fact that it must be weird for you reading stories based on things you did, in which there's a character called John who does stuff that 
sometimes it's stuff that you didn't do, but that completely works within the story. Are you worried at any point that you will start to kind of, after you read, read these stories so many times that you will begin to kind of replace your memory? <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Like, I understand. I am, you're talking about implanted memory. Yeah, you'll get. Com- you might get confused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Implanted diversions mm. of, of of the actual events. It's like in Blade Runner, but you're Rachel and you're having memories about a dream of a unicorn. Remember? Um, mm. Yeah. Mm. Do you but think that'll Paul, happen? Um, I don't think it's going to happen that much. Okay. Um, but what I do think will happen mm. is that um, it will bring up a lot of um, stuff that I won't say is repressed, but. I have a very, very good memory of, of incidents. At least I think I do. Um, it's going to be uh, fascinating. I'm, I'm really excited. I think one of the interesting things about Loose Units as a writing project was taking things you did and putting them within a kind of um, like a little, you know, like a, like a narrative that flashes back and forth between the past and the present where you and I are sitting in a room talking through these cases. Now, this episode we are doing, we're doing the prologue. And we are doing um, Don't Be a Tool, which is uh, the first actual chapter, really, which talks about your time uh, working as a kind of apprentice toolmaker. Which I hated every second of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but then we're going to try and stray into purely academical this week if we can. Uh, mm. But one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is in the prologue, uh, I talk about the fact that I saw crime scene photos from the case which is the final chapter in this book. It's about a witch. And we're not going to go ahead and spoil that right now. But when I was a kid, I did see those photos and I did kind of, you know, get a little bit scarred by them. But one of the things that I didn't put in the book, these stories, living hold court and you would tell stories. I mean, you're a natural born storyteller. I think that's why I got so annoyed at you being so shy on stage at our live shows because I thought, but you've been telling stories my whole life. You would have friends over to the house and you would be sitting there pacing around telling these incredible stories and one of the stories i kept overhearing as a kid was the case of the witch and i didn't put that in the book because it wasn't kind of you know cinematic or striking enough but in the prologue i talk about rocking up to your house in beacon hill and sitting down with you to talk through uh the cases and kind of kicking off the project now in reality do you remember where the interviews for the book took place? Um, <laughs> shit. Yeah. Paul, this is proof that we haven't really... God, you've sort of hoodwinked yeah, I, me. Is that maybe a little bit. I mean, I, I'm not trying to test you, you, but... I mean, they took place, um, they took place in, in cafes and coffee shops and lots of places. And a bar at one point. And a bar, that's right. Um, and, and the back of a churros uh, restaurant, yes, and I indeed. would just sit there with my phone out. But yeah, it um, happened all over Sydney. But if you, re- it did. It happened all over Sydney, and it was. I wish I could play you some of the audio, listeners, because just Dad sounded so different back then because he didn't, he hadn't hit that kind of confidence level that he gets from having you know, listeners kind of tell him how great he is, and we recorded in various sort of, you know, eateries and whatnot on the, on my mm, phone. Mm, yeah. uh, so, <laughs> what did you make of... I mean, I, okay, I'm just going to read you a, a quick... So, we're going straight in. We're diving straight in. I'm going to read you the description of the room in which, in the book, uh, we talked through these stories together and had all these wonderful father and son moments, okay? Mm. Okay. 
Picture a study. Mahogany, leather, a faint fog of cigar smoke, and light perforated by Venetian blinds. Fill the room with a book with fill the room with bookshelves and fill those shelves with an inordinate number of Clive Cussler novels. Now, put my father on a leather armchair in the center of the room, flanked by the same box as I crash landed on decades earlier, their lids still battered from the impact. The room has floorboards with antique rugs laid over one another clumsily, and there's a window open. Dad always leaves a window open. Is any of that true? Uh, Clive Cussler? Yep. And window open? Yep. Uh, I think what's happened to you, Paul, is that you have created a fantasy room, yeah. almost sort of from the Dickensian times. And in fairness to you, what you've created is beautiful and what you've created is what I too would love to have had as my private den. Mm. But we, as you know had bought and sold seven properties um, in total. Yeah. And you and the kids had lived in many, many houses, some of them historic. Mm-hmm. And I was an antique dealer for, well, since the early 80s up until the present. And it was not uncommon for you children to come home um, and a few times a week all the furniture would be replaced. Uh, you, you kids probably dined at maybe 200 dining tables, you would have seen over 100 clocks, um, almost an infinite number of artworks. Because I used to love bringing things home and then I would sell them because that was my business. Yeah. And and we had a house with beautiful um, floorboards, the way you described them. So I think what you've done, you've created this beautiful um, ethereal dream using a combination of all the places you'd lived in to create something that you thought was appropriate. And you, and funnily enough, Paul, you created something that is, is how I would love to sort of, you know... And we had leather chairs. We had, we had all of that. Every single thing that you've described, we had. And Clive Cussler was and still is my favorite author. But Dad, that, but is, that is fucking eerie that you're saying this because I, I was going to reveal this to you that I actually just... What I, because we moved around so much... And I wanted to try and, because I always wanted to have that one house that we lived in, the family house. So I took bits from all my favorite features of the lounge rooms and living rooms of all the houses we've had and put them into a single room. And then I remember that you used to smoke cigars for a brief period and had a lovely humidor. And so I just sort of crammed it into one fictional room, which was a composite, like a megazord of all your various rooms and then put you in it. And it just felt right. That's lovely, Paul. But... Look, I had a humidor, mm. but I had this weird, um, and I'm really sharing quite an intimate and personal um, thought with the people that really matter, um, and that's our incredible listeners. And listeners, I'm just going to share something very briefly with you, and that is that Paul's sister, Anne, she had, um, well, she had a few boyfriends. And every time I'd meet a new boyfriend, I would think, wow, this guy's really great. And I couldn't help myself. And what I used to do is I used to give all her boyfriends <laughs> gifts. Yeah. But not, not shitty little gifts. No, like priceless. I would t- like really, really, really good stuff. I would seek out the rarest whiskey in Australia. I would give them an incredible limited edition photograph from our lounge room wall. And Christine had bought me for Christmas a humidor that was beautiful. And I remember giving the humidor to one of her boyfriends. 
an amazing black and white photograph that I paid pretty good money for to another boyfriend who was a dud. Sorry, Anne. Um, <laughs> and, and Anne would come up to us afterwards and say, oh, Dad, um, you know, what did you think of that particular guy? Now, I have never, ever given an opinion on any of you kids' boyfriend or girlfriends ever because, let's face it, it's it's none of my business. And I'm just saying that, yes, I did love, I had a cigar cutter. I love the whole ritual of cigars, aside from the uh, minor thing about throat cancer. But um, I, go, I guess I weaned myself off cigarettes and, and onto uh, cigars. And I still really love cigars. But I gave this... Um, humidor to uh, one of Anne's boyfriends. I mean, absolutely ridiculous. And I actually think I was mad and I wish I still had the humidor. And Christine was really pissed off. Well, it's in the book. You know, it's not described in the book, but it is. It's in the book, safe and sound. There is a version of that humidor in, in a world in which you never gave it away. So don't don't fret. Now, as, as, for, the, as for the description of you, Dad, now picture my dad, John. Tall, graying, stylish. He's a hair over six feet tall, broad-shouldered, in his late 50s, calm and collected. And he maintains this air of cool right up until the moment I enter the room. It is now that I clock his new reading glasses, which magnify his eyes to such cartoonish levels that I have to sit down on account of the laughter. You went through a phase where you wore... I, look, first of all, listeners, we're going to get to the crime soon. We just want to get the prologue out of the way and just get mm. through, you know, just some of the inaccuracies. No, it's great. Yeah. It's important. You think that's a fair description of no, you? No, I don't. No, I was totally... <laughs> I was actually mildly... Offended? Look, well, I was moderately offended when you described... I mean, I looked like a, a caricature of Mr. Magoo. Um, I literally called you handsome. Yes, I said tall, you... greying, stylish. No, but the glasses. Oh, the gla- that's not... They, you made... It sound like my glasses were the bottom of Coke bottles. Um, now, I had extensive eye surgery. Yeah. So, I actually had um, corrective surgery so I can have macro vision and read through my left eye. Yeah. And my right eye is for long distance. And it kind of worked. And I still don't wear glasses. And I don't have blue eyes. But you have to tear books in half and hold one half really close and the other half in the other hand really far away. <laughs> mm. Yep. You're ruining books. But I, the, I, the blue eye thing, that, that threw me as well. But, I mean, you're the author and... Um, oh, fuck, that's right. And I right. was wondering... You don't have well, blue eyes. you actually just wanted me to have blue eyes. No, I just... I've, I've Mandela-affected myself into thinking... We've covered this before. Not only have we covered this before, we've covered the fact that we often cover the same thing before. And now that we're doing a season covering something which people have read mm. before, shit's going to get very Inception. So, without further ado, let's, Dad, let's jump into the really good stuff. Let's get into Chapter 1. Don't be a tool. Now... Chapter one is primarily concerned with the fact that you ended up as an apprentice toolmaker, and it and it kind of ends with that really great, fairly cinematic moment. And this is something we talk about all the time on stage. Loose Units is a love story between you and uh, Christine Verhoeven, who ended up being uh, my mum and your wife. She wasn't called Christine Verhoeven when you first met. It doesn't matter. It's it's really getting confusing. The point is. The core conceit of this whole chapter, and indeed of the beginning of your love story with mum, is that you were at the, like, just at your wit's end, and a newspaper clipping appeared in which mum was on the newspaper uh, advertising to, rec- like, a recruitment ad for the New South Wales Police Force. Could you talk us through that, please? Well, um, that part of the story, Paul, is very accurate. Okay. Um, but what, what we have not mentioned is that I actually. 
was working. I finished my apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I stress, I hated every day, every minute of that. Um, but when I finished my apprenticeship, um, oh, okay, yep. so I worked for the safe company, but I also worked for the envelope manufacturer. And I was sitting in this factory uh, during a break and there was a, a torn segment of a, of, a, of a newspaper on the floor. Now, you very, very beautifully described this wind that kind of, in almost a fantasy world, blew and twirled. I and mean, you could see this piece of paper swirling around and I may have grabbed it, but it was on the floor. I was having a break. I was totally at my wits end mm-hmm. with my life in, in terms of I didn't know what I wanted to do. And it's, it's, it's an incredibly true and accurate portrayal, Paul, of me reaching down and there was a torn fragment of a newspaper, probably the Daily Telegraph, and there was a photograph of two police officers standing, so if you can imagine the passenger door mm. and the driver's door both open, and there was a uh, rather sexy woman in uniform, albeit a very old-fashioned uniform, uh, holding the, the, the sort of the police radio, and there's a caption, um, something like, join the New South Wales police force today. And it had the salary, and the salary from memory was around about $370 a week. And that blew my brains out. With six weeks paid annual leave, and I thought, golly, this is, this is sounding really exciting. I was looking for a change. I loved adrenaline. I made my way from that toilet in that factory to a company telephone. I, I called the number and I began the process of what was going to become a wonderful part of my life, my future. Now, talk us through that actual process because, I mean, well, first of all, when you were working at the, um, at the toolmakers? Oh, it was called Cellpack. They made envelopes, mm. an envelope manufacturing company um, at the time, very, very high tech. Um, can I, can I, shall I talk about what happened on my very last day there or should we leave that until... Well, look, I felt so confident. I had this weird feeling that I really had a chance and I did something quite silly, uh, sort of on par with buying a house and then... Um, but buying it before you've sold your house. So you really, really put your nuts in a vice. So what I did, I hated my job so much. Now, this is a little bit of a... I'm a slightly ashamed... To, to tell you and the listeners this, but there were these big machines that made envelopes and they were about maybe 20 to 30 metres long and they had two um, process workers working really, really flat out as the envelope spun into this little section and I knew I was going to leave the company and I left prematurely, but I was so confident that I'd get into the New South Wales Police Force and what I did, I, um, I wound the machine up to the maximum speed, well beyond the manufacturer's specifications. And I remember walking out of the factory and I looked back and there were envelopes flying into the air. There was pandemonium. And I felt, I had this warm glow feeling about, well, you know, F you. I've had a shitty time, turned the machine up. um, And then I went downstairs and I wrote this uh, letter and I put it on the passenger seat of the managing director's Mercedes convertible, basically telling him what I thought of this particular company. And I, uh, I went home to my apartment where my brother and his flatmate were. And um, I began the process of joining the, uh, the New South Wales Police Force. And, uh... Well, first of all, one of the things that always strikes me about this chapter 
about don't be a tool is that your family didn't want you to become a police officer. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Um, my aunt, Frances, mm. um, who was involved in all the protests during the moratorium in the late 60s, you know, the anti-Vietnam War protests. And she is a pacifist, uh, not unlike yourself, Paul. And she used to go to these demonstrations and she wore um, spectacles that she needed. Obviously, she had pretty shitty vision mm. and um, she was actually at uh, university at the time. And she was... Um, arrested by the police uh, during that, that tumultuous time and they um, they basically bashed her, my Aunt Frances, and her spectacles fell off her face and one of the police officers just basically squashed and ground the, the lenses into the, into the road. And, you know, that was pretty upsetting for her, obviously, and she had, that became a bit of a family story. So there was always this feeling. And also we had had relatives, fairly well-off relatives in Sydney, and one of the uh, relatives had had some um, uncut rubies and they were catching a cab in the city in George Street and they left this packet of uncut rubies in the back of a cab and they got in touch with the cab company and they were never, ever returned. Um, someone had, had stolen them and the police seemed fairly disinterested. So there were a number of events in our family's life that had kind of made them, not that they had a lot to do with the police, but it became a little bit of a sort of a, a feeling that it was perhaps beneath um, anyone in the family to do that. Okay. Um, and then when I decided and let the family know that I had considered and wanted to join the New South Wales Police Force, there were members in my family that almost, c- can you imagine this, they almost couldn't bring, they almost couldn't look at me. They they couldn't talk to me. Really? It was as, yeah. It was as though I was um, as if I wasn't already the black sheep of the family, which I was for lots of reasons. But um, that just seemed to a lot of people in my family because they were a lot of them were academics um, for, for better or worse. But they just felt that it was a bit of a bit of a weird thing to do, and and some of them really felt strongly um, in terms of I shouldn't perhaps consider that which made me all the more defiant and all the more determined to uh to make something of my life ready to pop the question the jewelers at blue have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, I didn't realize that there'd been multiple incidents which kind of made the Verhoeven clan, you know, chafe at the idea of the police. Do you remember what happened when you told, I'm just going to go straight to the source, like what did your mum think when you told her? Do you remember how it went? Look, I think mum um, was at her wit's end with me, um, you know, and perhaps she was one of the few people in the family that thought, look, she's always pretty well been on my side. Mm. My father, he, I don't think he really cared that much um, as long as I had a job. Uh, it, that that type of negative reaction did not come from my immediate family. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, not my mother, not my father, but, and certainly not my grandmother. She... Uh, Anything I ever did, she thought was great. And this is K letters, isn't it? Kathleen, yeah. Yep, yep. But um, but some of the other people, and and perhaps rightfully so, based on their experiences. Yeah. Um, but I was going to become the first. Um, well, golly, hang on a sec. We must be careful here because uh, maybe we should wait a little while and talk about that other relative. Um, yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We can wait. Save that for. Yeah, we'll save that. Yeah, we can wait because that was a bit of a shock. That story because that. I'd, I'd never been told about another relative. I'm just going to grab this chapter again. I'm enjoying this kind of like blow by blow. Are you enjoying the kind of interviewer? It. It's great. Thing? I, yeah. I really like it. Great. Great. According to the book, and again, when I did the interview sessions with you for the book, it was all info that that you gave me. So um, if it's wrong, uh, then then whatever. It says in the book that, <laughs> that you were 19 years old at this point. Yeah. 19... Very skinny. Um, Very. 76 kilos I weighed. Well, that's the day I got to the academy and they weighed us all. I was so, do, mate, I was, I was, do you I hear, was weedy, do you hear weedy. So, do you want to hear something weird that's going to, I weigh exactly 76 kilos right now. No, well, that's. Weedy, apparently. You, you, no, Paul. No, not, no, you look great. You said and, weedy and, three times. Okay. Well, I was referring to Bill and Ben. Really? Flower pot men. Sure. That was just one of the terms they used, weedy. But um, no, I... Uh, look, when I went to 14 College Street, um, opposite Hyde Park in Sydney, mm. and um, I would have made my way in um, by bus and super nervous. Um, I always had a respect and, and I always thought the police were really important. I had had one encounter with, um, with a police officer... He was the boyfriend of a girl that I knew. She went to a private school and he was everything that I thought at the time. Now, I was in the middle of... I was probably 18 and I used to go to this family's house occasionally and there was this police officer in Sydney. He was... um, I'll tell you how long ago it was. He had a holster that they had to actually unclip. So you couldn't actually see the gun at all. So by the time in those days you'd try and fumble around to get your gun out, you'd definitely be shot. That's why they got rid of that type of old-fashioned holster. But he was going out with a girl who was in high school. Um, so that presents some weird stuff. What? Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, yeah. Um, you remember when I was living in uh, DY with those Indonesian guys after I'd been booted out of home? Nope, you never told me that. Cool. Do you want to, shall I elaborate? Why not? Well, It's called Origins, Dad. We need to find out the origin of everything. Well, when I was booted out of home and I had to find myself an apprenticeship, um, which I did, I didn't even know what an apprenticeship 
was, because as everyone knows, because I've gone on ad nauseum, is that I was, dare I say it, the first person in the history of all the generations not to go to university. Um, And for the listeners, I actually got six A-levels in my school certificate, so I was a bloody good student, and I certainly had the potential to go on, and education was free at university, blah, 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 blah. You can still see I still crap on about it. Thank you, Gough Whitlam. Thank you. But um, I moved in with some Indonesian guys and one was a um, a practicing Muslim and he used to pray five times a day mm-hmm. and he and his uh, flatmate, they were so kind, they felt sorry for me um, and they took me in basically and what they did is that they shared a bed. They slept in a single, uh, sorry, in a double bed and gave me the spare room. Um, and they did that for years. And uh, I thought that was jolly nice of them. I don't know whether I'd do that for a, for a weedy, <laughs> sad, pimply teenage boy in Sydney. Um, and there I stayed. And, and I, I got to make friends in that particular area. And I, I befriended these particular girls from a private school nearby. And one of them was hanging out with a police officer. And he used to come around. And he was, he was from the country. And he was... Uh, Everything that I vowed, if I ever became a police officer, I would not do. On every level, he was. You mean you in would, fact, you wouldn't just, you wouldn't date high school girls for one. Um, I don't know about that, but he was just such a he. I can't even. I just I just don't know how he got in the police force. Um, he was just. He was not super bright. And he was—he used to leave his gun hanging around, and oh, and I, and I thought, wow, this is this is wow, this is if this what if this is what the police force is all about. But then, you know, ironically, years later, I, I did um, end up joining that that uh, establishment. Um, but he was not a not a great role model. How old were you at this point? Sixteen. I would have been. No, I was driving, so I was seventeen. Seventeen. Okay, so you're saying, so this is kind of interesting, and this is part of the reason I'm glad we're doing Origins. So in, in the book, and all my knowledge that I've turned into the other, you know, the other books, Electric Blue as well, you joined when you were 19, and as far as I was aware, you hadn't really had too many run-ins with the police. The fact that you had a negative impression of a police officer before that point is really mm. interesting to me. Yes, but I was wise enough to realise that I certainly didn't tar the entire police force, because also there's that great story when my car was broken into. Remember that one in the city? Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember and, that. And, and with the Christmas presents, and I was peeing, having a, taking yep. a leak, and the two police officers threatened to take me back to Central Police Station, which was a horrific police station, mm. uh, and they basically were nice and said, look, you know, they let me go, and I thought, well, that, that, that's a feather in, that's a plus. And that, that was a good thing. Yep. So you kind of weigh these things up. So when I had to go into police headquarters, which was a very austere and, and ominous building, it was an entire sky, um, not a skyscraper, but it was about 18 floors. Mm-hmm. And, and it was, it, it held all the, everything to do with the police force. How'd you feel? Were you nervous? No, I, I was shitting myself. And I caught the elevator and just, you had to sign in and there were security officers, obviously. And I went up to the, um, the recruiting section mm-hmm. And the first thing I had to do was an IQ test. Oh, hang on. So you've just said that you encountered an officer who was somewhat dim. So I are you saying that, like, what? Okay, what is the low bar? Maybe they, maybe they, 
What do you mean the low bar? Like what's what's the lowest you can be to get into the police force? Do we know? IQ wise, yeah. Well, your mother worked in recruiting, so uh, so she would really know the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. But let's say the average IQ is a hundred. I would say maybe for the police force was perhaps maybe one ten as a minimum. Okay, and. Um, so I remember sitting down with a whole... So it was like a recruiting day. Mm-hmm. In fact, they were recruiting and they were having these uh, sort of sessions. They were probably probably having two a day for maybe a week or two. And we all just piled into this classroom and, and it was just full-on old-style IQ tests, which is mathematics, comprehension, English. You know, you you had to recite... Not recite, you had to read a paragraph uh, and correct it. So they they were obviously wanting to get some sort of people that had a, a, a basic sense of grammar, mm-hmm. which I did, most definitely. Um, and then they must have processed... That's right. They took all the, all the results out, all, all the, uh, the forms, and they marked them very, very quickly because within 30 minutes, that's when I went in to have my, my physical. So I had a medical where they took blood pressure and all that sort of stuff. You know, I, I don't think they did body fat, and they certainly didn't need to do it. They just looked at me and thought, well, you're scrawny. But in the, I was going to say the olden days, for God's sake, but in the very early 80s, like late 70s, early 80s, one of the things, if you were a male, in the ad, it actually said you had to have a chest expansion of, now I don't remember what it was, but it was in inches, and let's mm-hmm. say it was maybe 38 or 40 inches. And one of the things, now you said in the book that the doctor did that particular thing with the tape measure. Mm-hmm. The doctor did everything bar that. Yes. And there was a sergeant, I remember, and he's standing in this room. He had a tape measure. You know those floppy canvassy type things? And he basically came up to me and he put his arms around me to reach so he could put the tape measure behind me and they lift it up your back and they have it going underneath your armpits. Mm-hmm. And he says, breathe in, breathe in. So I breathed in as much as I could. I put as much air in my lungs as possible and i i fell short as you did say in the book and i i gave it everything and i desperately wanted to get into the police force i just i just wanted it. i the, being in that building and seeing <clears throat> police in uniform and and the cars out the front i thought wow mm-hmm. this is you know and then i had all, all all sorts of visions of what i you know tearing around at 120 miles an hour in the city and crazy stuff because i loved you know i love driving and uh and it was it was sort of the machismo, the the vibe. It was um, it was everything. And I and I thought. And he basically looked at me and he said, "Mate, I'm I'm going to sort of paraphrase what he said to me." But he he basically said to me, "You've got one more chance." And uh, and I, I'll tell you what. Now I remember he because he's the guy. This is this is like make or break. I'd got through every single test, and this is the final thing. I don't. I mean, it's insane. Like now you look at police. I mean, it's it's a it's a cross section of, of of the real society we're in. But back then they and they had a minimum height. They had minimum. They had they had really set um, standards that had been in probably used for a hundred years. And um, when I when I took that final, you know, inhale, and I thought this is it, and I'll never forget. He kind of. Because I could feel the tape going a bit slack. And what he did, he moved the tape about an inch up to the... As if there would have been someone looking at him. 
and then he he said yeah you're in and he wrote down my chest expansion and he fudged the figures and i don't know who that guy was but i i'm grateful to him and uh the doctor has stamped your form let you in that's all in keeping uh i mean it is it is interesting that one of the first things that has happened to let you into the police force a bastion of you know lawmaking and rule keeping and you know they would break the rules to let you in did you consider that kind of a red flag or were you just grateful no i was really grateful I, i i was so excited i knew i'd passed the iq test i knew physically i was i was in really good nick uh, although back then I did smoke, um, and I kind of backed off the cigarettes. I began to began began to back off. Um, All right. So once you're in the academy, you're sitting there. You you know you you get to the academy. You're being taught. Do you remember what you what it felt like to actually rock up to the uh, Redfern Police Academy the first time? Uh, yeah. Well, it was winter, mm-hmm. and um, I think I joined in June or July. So imagine Sydney in midwinter where it yep. is really cold. Single mm-hmm. single digit number like degrees, yeah. And I again, I would have made my way in uh, on a, on a bus, mm-hmm. um, and we came in the front gate, and we went off to the right into these big big classrooms, and they got us pretty well everyone to strip down to their underwear, um, and I had a, like a white singlet, and I was sitting next to this guy that made Arnold Schwarzenegger Arnold Schwarzenegger look pretty anorexic. This guy was built like a brick shit house. He was roided up. He was he was just he had muscles on muscles and and he was sitting next to me on this. Uh, we were all sitting on top of tables and uh, and they came in and they their objective was to sort us into six classes and they just simply did it alphabetically and um, so it was A B C D E F and F we got the nickname F Troop because of Verhoeven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we and we were sort of. We were a sort of a motley crew. Uh, we had a couple of girls in the class. We, it was a really interesting cross-section. But one of the guys in the class was actually a helicopter pilot that was going to do the initial training and then go to the air wing. He'd already he'd been a pilot in Vietnam. So we had, we had guys that, that had come from farms. We had um, air hostesses with, uh, with various Australian airlines. Um, we had school teachers actually quite a few school teachers. We had a girl that I'd gone to school with um, who'd gone on and done her HSC and become, uh, you know, finished her teaching degree. So it was really, really, uh, it was a, a mixed bag of fruit. And then we were all sort of led up to our classrooms. Um, I, can, I could take you there to this very day, to, to the classroom. And I can, you know, mentally I'm sort of going there and I can describe it in, in great detail. And we were introduced to our two instructors um, who were, as fate would have it, two of the nicest, most knowledgeable, interesting uh, police officers. They were both sergeants and uh, there was uh, Dennis Shipley and uh, Mr. Morrison and uh, they were they were the nicest, most... Oh, look, it was like a family... And we just settled in, and I was so so happy and, and grateful to be uh, on this on this sort of the cusp of of a future. And, I, and at that time, I, I thought I would stay in the New South Wales Police Force until I retired. There was no reason to ever contemplate, and it was just it was exciting. Every day was um, 
was thrilling. I just couldn't wait to get to class. It was so, Paul. In your book, mm. uh, Loose Units, that I uh, read this morning, yes, as per my my homework duties, mm-hmm. um, one of the things that's always intrigued me uh, is that you had me and my fellow class members in class, mm-hmm. and then outside the uh, sort of on the other side of the windows was a window cleaner, yeah, and he used to be there every single day. Mm-hmm. And he was uh, washing the windows and, and using his little squeegee. He was probably hanging by ropes, Paul, in, in your mind, because um, there was no scaffolding. Uh, we were high up. Uh, we were on the second floor. But he was out there, this guy. And when I say out there, he was out there from what you, how you described him, he was out there both because you, you've described him as being um, off his face, uh, stoned. And um, that 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 had me intrigued. Um, but I mean, where did you come up with that, Paul? Well, you mentioned a window cleaner at one point uh, out the window, and you never mentioned the window cleaner again. And then uh, we were trying to work. Okay, so one of the things that comes really strongly through loose units is the fact that I thought, and I think many people think, that when you're a cop, you have a kind of partner who is with you the whole time, right? And your partner was, uh, not his real name, Julian. And Julian's a big through line. And I was sitting there with this window cleaner. And because I'm basing these stories on real things, I've got a window cleaner who's outside who you suspected may have been like smoking weed. I think it was like a throwaway comment when we were at this bar. You may have just been like talking nonsense Mm. or you may have remembered some detail. Mm. And I just thought, shit, what if I made that Julian? And what if when the police instructor is running through the different types of, um, you know, specialities that cops can end up in he finishes on undercover and then he's and then on cue the undercover guy outside the window comes in like repels in the window Mm. like an action hero Mm. and reveals that the whole thing was a stunt to basically you know pretty much just blow away the students with the efficacy of good undercover work because Mm. the window cleaner had been there all week Mm. so it's great it's a great story paul but it's um, unfortunately it bears no it's just you have got a very, very fertile imagination on this particular issue, and that actually never happened. But did you like it when you read it? I loved it. it. <laughs> That's I loved all that matters. It. Yeah. It was brilliant, and it is brilliant, and it's very plausible, but it didn't happen on this particular occasion because um, that character who is real, he comes to fruition later. Yes, he does. But yeah, it was just the, the, there are certain gaps in your knowledge. Um, that you had to fill. That, that I have to fill. And There's you, certain cases where you would sit there and go, I remember nothing except mm, the outcome. Yeah. And I would I would literally give you like a sketch of a, you know, semi-fictional or, or like very fictional version of events like a fight or a chase or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And you would say, look, as long as we end up in that place, that's cool. So... Um, there's a thing in pro wrestling, Dad, where basically every single beat of a fight and you know all the, all the speeches and the yelling and the choreography, it's all choreographed, it's all planned. But if something goes wrong or if they go off script or whatever, let's say a table doesn't break over someone's back, then they have to basically just make shit up for the next mm. 20 minutes. And yeah. as long as they end up at that key point, mm. and that weirdly enough, that wrestling adage is what I applied here. But Neil Gaiman, um, who's a wonderful author, uh, I interviewed him about eight years ago. And he said this thing that I really loved once, and he said that something um, doesn't need to have happened to be true. Mm. So if you 
ground a thing in the truth of a character, you can kind of take things off in weird directions. Julian is a fascinating character who we're going to talk about a lot this season, and readers of Loose Units will know a lot about Julian. They won't know a lot of the really interesting behind-the-scenes stuff, which we're going to get into a little bit of throughout this season. But suffice to say, we have now taken you up to uh, the end of purely... No, what chapter are we up to? Oh, okay, hang on, let's see. Let's have a look. Let me just open a copy of Loose Units and see what chapter we're up to. Okay, so we've done the prologue and Don't Be a Tool. So, really, Dad, that means that next week we're going to be doing Purely Academical, which covers your time at the Academy. Uh, It covers that really great story about that inspection of the apartment. And then we might take a look at Oh, Captain, My Captain, which is the next chapter after that, which involves a pretty interesting story with you um, during training, sort of becoming it like a, you know, like a like a like a placeholder goodwill ambassador in the class. Yeah, yeah. I, what does it feel like to be revisiting before we wrap things up? How how did that feel for you? I, I'm enjoying it, and I, okay. I I like the fact that this is almost slightly like an interview, um, mm-hmm. where you you know you tease things out. I mean, I think it's great, and I, and I love reading the book again. So yeah, it's wonderful, and I like to really focus on each chapter um, and really get into it because it's. It's really, really interesting um, comparing, you know, the actual story to, to what you've written and, and the stuff that it brings. And obviously you can't get, you can't fit everything into, you know, the book would be, it'd be volumes. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just brings me back to that, that, that time when you once approached me and said, Dad, I'd like to blah, blah, blah. And I simply said, mate, sorry, not enough info. And then you've done... Um, Two two books and and the podcast. Four seasons. We've done four seasons of the podcast. So it's it's pretty good, and uh, I'm sure there's a lot more buried deep within my uh, within my mind. Well, with that in mind, everyone, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Loose Units Origins. It's the beginning of a brand new season, and we've got you can tell at the the rate at which we're going through. There's like 40 chapters in the book, and we've done. The prologue in the first chapter. This is going to be a very, very big, deep season. And as it goes on, we will start delving really deep into some of the behind-the-scenes stuff and through some of the, you know, the truth behind the cases. But also, Dad's memory is going to start getting jogged and we're going to find out more stuff that we never knew even happened. So, uh, please let us know what you thought of the episode over at facebook.com forward slash loose units. We can't wait to hear from you. And we will see you this Friday for an episode of Loose Ends. See you then. Bye-bye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today. 
and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big.